It is great to see you all. It's great to be back. I see a lot of familiar faces, but I also see a lot of new faces, which is very fun because the church grows, the church changes. Uh, I am blessed to be a part of this, what I call a parade of preachers that, that Wes is bringing in uh, this fall into January and was very honored to get the invitation. And we are talking about what's next. What, what does the church of what is the future God is calling the church to? And what elements of being church we should lean forward toward that future in? And so, so today, we're going to hear from the Apostle Paul first in, in Galatians chapter 6. And so if you're one of those people who reads along, and I love those people who read along, uh, grab your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 6. It's about 95% of the way through the book uh, and after the biggest of the letters of Paul. Um, I've got, I'm going to set it up because we're going to see that Paul describes two very different ways of life in chapter 5. And he does that because for most of the letter to the Galatians before this, Paul is describing how the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, is not the ticket to being loved by God. He says, it's a, it's a blind alley to think if I just get better, if I just obey the law more, God will like me more. Uh, Paul tries to tell them God likes you, period. God loves you, period. And so he's been making that case for four chapters now. But in a vacuum, they may be asking, well, do we just do bad stuff? Are we, are we fine doing bad stuff? And what do we, how do we know what's good? What is the, if the law disappears, how do we know what, how we ought to behave? That's where chapter 5 picks up, and as he has set that up, we're going to pick up at two very different styles of life. So, let's listen together for the Word of God as it comes to us from Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. Now, the works of the flesh, says Paul, are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, there are a lot of Jesus movies running around. The Chosen came out recently. Nod your head if you've seen any parts of The Chosen. I think it's on Prime Video. Um, Jesus Revolution has come out. Before that, we had Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ in the 90s, early 2000s. We had Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth in the 70s, and a whole lot of others between. People like to make movies about Jesus, but I want to tell you about my favorite one, and it'll sound a little sacrilegious. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. 
I know I showed it to my students when I was a professor because it captures what was going on in the first century. In the first century, you've got Roman rule over Israel, over Palestine, over the, the current territory that is very embattled. Roman rule is in place, and it's got an iron thumb. And so, so the, people of, the people of Israel were always under that thumb, and they were ambivalent about it. Some said we ought to just keep, keep complying, and others said we ought to re revolt. Right? We ought to have a revolution, overthrow Roman rule. In the good old days, we had our own land, and so that's what we want. Right? Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian gets that. And so, as Jesus does what he does, there's this sort of alternative guy, Brian, that people accidentally start following in this very revolutionary time and think he's going to be their leader. But as the, as the movie opens, second or third scene, You've got Jesus, the real Jesus, not the Brian, the real Jesus, speaking the immortal words of the Sermon on the Mount off in a distance as people try to hear from the edges. And they're not exactly hearing everything. Some of them are revolutionary leaders, some of them are not, but they're all on the edge trying to lean in and figure it out. So one of them pops up with, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. And somebody else says, no, you're reading it too literally. He means the manufacturers of any dairy products, right? And after a while, they hear more in the background. There's a little mumbling among them. And then somebody pops up and says, blessed are the Greek, right? That's what they think Jesus was saying. But somebody says, no, I think, I think he said meek. And somebody else says, oh, that's good. They're having a heck of a time, right? So you've got these people trying to process the, the famous words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. And as these revolutionary leaders, the, the Judean front, right, the, the people's Judean front, are leaving the scene, Reg, their ringleader, played by John Cleese, says something very important. He says, what Jesus manifestly fails to appreciate is that the meek are the problem. Right? What Jesus manifestly fails to appreciate is that the meek are the problem. Now, for a revolutionary, Reg is saying, the meek get in the way. They're too passive, they're too submissive, they're all of those things. We don't get to overrule or, or overcome Rome if everybody just turns meek. And so our referendum today is on meekness. And by now you may be saying, well, Alan, we didn't read the Beatitudes as our passage this morning. We read something from Paul, and here's the trick. In Paul's Galatians 5, the word that he uses to describe gentleness is praoutes. Jesus' word for Greek in, the, in Matthew 5 is praus. They're the same word in a different form. So what Paul is calling gentleness, Jesus is calling meek, and Reg is saying that's the problem. We've got to ask ourselves, is meekness a problem? And I think it's a decent time to ask that because in August, David Brooks wrote an article for The Atlantic simply called, How America Got Mean. How many of you have noticed this happening? The meanness rising in America. We see viral videos of people fighting on airplanes. We, we see a rise in hate crimes. We see a rise in the purchase of non-hunting guns. We see a whole lot of things that are either violent or mean going on so that people in trusted professions like nursing and teachers and pastors are 
flying away from, are, are leaving their profession because people are just being abusive to them. It, we, we got worse during COVID. We were snapping people's masks off or shoving masks onto people. We were, we were doing all of this sort of brazen stuff with one another, and we got better at just being mean. David Brooks, in this article, identifies that trend and tries to trace it out. And we'll get to the, the tracing out in a moment. But I think it's a good season to ask, are the meek the problem, or are they the solution? Let's trace that out a little bit. And so, in Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And that one we've just been celebrating. The second time that word turns up in Matthew, if we're trying to define what this actually means, the second time that word turns up in Matthew is in chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus, and learn of me, for I am praus, I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your souls. So what he says is blessed in chapter 5, he returns and says, is me, Jesus, I am meek, I am praus, I am gentle. He calls himself that as he's offering rest and comfort to us. And then in chapter 21, the great sort of Christ the King Sunday sort of thing, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Famous Palm Sunday passage, right? And, and as he comes, Matthew, who is describing this scene of Jesus parading in in kingly kind of uh, fashion with everybody shouting Hosanna and all kinds of good things and putting their cloaks out, when Matthew tries to figure out, where have I heard that before? He goes to the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, and he, he's, he says, the king is coming gentle, or in, in most translations, humble and on a donkey. That word is praus. So, Jesus runs the table. Blessed are the praus. I am praus. And my biographer, Matthew, is saying, I'm coming into town, even in this parade, I'm coming in praus, right? Praus. I, I am meek. I am gentle. I am humble. Jesus says these things about himself. And you know what? That hasn't always had good press. Reg didn't like it in the Monty Python scene. But Reg was made from people, John Cleese, uh, Michael Palin and the gang. They were from Oxford and Cambridge, and they knew their Jesus history, and they knew new things about the history of revolution. And so they, they knew what was going on, and the, the meek being the problem, they knew came from Marx, right? Karl Marx, the sort of ideologist or a philosopher of revolution, famously called religion the opiate of the masses. It puts us to sleep so that the ruling class can keep ruling us. The meek are in the way, the submissive are in the way. That's the picture that Marx paints. And Later in, that eight, in the 19th century, along came Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, uh, power is the thing, and Christianity is a religion of the weak. Notice how weak rhymes with meek. We think of it that way. When we hear the word meek, we think weak just because of the resonance. So Nietzsche had the same, same case as Marx. Namely, Christianity is too submissive. It's too flimsy. It's too weak. It's in the way, right? Well, enter C.S. Lewis. He wrote about 100 years after Marx, a uh, little less than that after Nietzsche. 
And C.S. Lewis knew them well, knew the, the conversations of the day very well. And he, he wrote as a response, not a treatise on how meekness is a good thing, not a response that shouted back at Marx or Nietzsche. Instead, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen it on movie? If you haven't, shame on you. Um, no, no, we, there's no shame in this house, right? There's no shame in this house. Um, but it's, it's, it's C.S. Lewis's case, I think, for answering those kinds of charges about Christianity. Christianity is too weak. Christianity is too submissive. Along comes this character, Aslan, who is Lion, who is the Christ figure. And the way that the children who are in that series, the way that the children who are in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe discover that he's a lion is quite quite remarkable. They have come into Narnia through the wardrobe. It's a long story. They've come into Narnia through the, the closet, basically, of a professor whose house they're staying in so they don't get hit by bombs in the Blitz in London. And they've come out and they go through and, and lo and behold, here they are in this entirely alternative world. And in this world, trees respond to them and, and fawns talk and beavers talk. And so they've heard about Aslan, but they haven't heard much and they're trying to size him up. Finally, Mr. Beaver tells them that Aslan is a lion. And Susan says, a lion? I hadn't thought he was a lion. I don't know that I would be very happy in a lion's presence. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, Safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, you know. Lewis was saying back to critics of Christianity, Jesus is not this sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that people can push over, and his followers are not called to be that. So he introduces in Aslan a, a sort of lion lamb who is able to shelter the weak, who is able to, he, Lewis had read John 4 and seen that in a very charged moment, Jesus stood between a woman who had been caught in adultery and a bunch of guys with rocks in their hands. He stood up and said, uh, so the sinless among you, go ahead. That is a strong move. That is not a passive, submissive move, but it's gentle. And Lewis also knew, knew a scene when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he, and he looks at the merchandising in the temple and sees that it's not looking like what it should be and sees that it's shutting out the poor and, and people who can't afford to come and sacrifice now because it costs too much and he throws down tables and overturns them. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's not weak Jesus and Lewis's case is, neither are we to be. Gentle strength is meekness. Not meanness, but gentle strength. And Lewis says that that's what Jesus called us to be, and we are Christians, and over half of Americans are Christians. So all we have to know this morning is that over half an Americans, of Americans fully get this and are, are, are not mean, and so the world is just going to get better, right? All Christians are not mean, right? Actually, we've drunk the Kool-Aid of our time. We've drunk the Kool-Aid of our time, which is that being right is more important than being good, that orthodoxy is more important than community, and that has been a killing sort of trade-off. We have contributed to mean, 
not by gentle strength, but by brazen behavior in violation of each other. Right? We are a part of the problem. And as we are a part of the problem, as we are saying those things to people we don't know online, as we do those things, as we're part of the problem, we are forfeiting a position in our, in our culture that the world wants us to take. Do you know that uh, in 2017, it was the Easter, you know how people always write articles on Christmas and Easter in the news magazines because that's the only time they can get them through their editors, right? So you get Christmas articles and you get Easter. Leading up to Easter 2017, just after Donald Trump has become the president, just after our whole nation has gone to war with one another during that election season, just in the kind of backlash against the Trump election, two men who are very different from one another. Ross Douthat of the New York Times, who is a devout Roman Catholic and a conservative. Peter Beinart of the Atlantic, who is a Jew and a progressive. Both wrote, without talking to one another, basically the same article in their, in their uh, publications the week before Easter. They said, liberals, go back to church. You're too mean now. The nation, the, the public, the culture relies on church to be a producer of gentle strength. And we're letting down the side. And so we get back to David Brooks. Um, David Brooks wrote this article in August, and in it he tried to describe why we are mean. How did we get that way? And he names four things that people have offered. One is technology. We're mean because we're always on our phones and we don't know how to talk to one another. We're mean because we're on social media and the anonymity lets us say everything that we want to say and hide behind distance. We don't have to be accountable. That's one cause, and he said, it's all right. I mean, that's a decent ex explanation. The second is um, sociology. We aren't living close to people whom we disagree with or whom we don't understand, and so we get farther from them and then we feel free to volley across the chasm. That's probably to some extent too. The third is demographic. We have so many different cultures and religions and ethnic groups that it's just very hard to be kind across those because we don't understand each other. There's probably a little of that going on, he says. And fourth is economic. The income gap has produced resentment and some mean behavior going both ways. And, and he says, you know, all of those are probably a little bit true. But he says the real problem in America is that we no longer have centers or vehicles for moral formation. It's not an accident that mean has grown because it's grown in a vacuum of places that will actually teach people what it is to be good to one another. Schools used to be big on that, and they're more now on being right, right? Whether they're saying ban these books or ban those books, they're about being right. And same with colleges and universities. We've become more enamored with being right than being, with being good. And so in schools, in other parts of culture that used to function this way, it's just kind of no longer there. Here's the good news, folks. 20 centuries of Christianity attest to the fact that when we are being church, we are centers of moral formation because we're followers of a Jesus whose life embodies the highest morality, the, the best way of being in the world. So when we're being church, when we're actually doing what we signed on to do, we are the answer to David Brooks's question. And, 
and he says, okay, so be that better, be that more, we become a solution when we are being church, when we are answering the call of God to be transformed by the Spirit of God into a people who are strong and gentle. Both, right? I'm going to close with a couple of quotations. And I seem to have grabbed the wrong... Did it fall? Yeah. Okay, take two. Um, I'm going to close with a couple of quotations because there is another upside. Not only if we become uh, the kind of people who look at Sunday school and Bible study, not just as places to, to answer curiosity, but as places where God transforms us into the people that God is calling us to be. And when we look at worship as a place where we are changed beautifully by the Spirit who gets us into us and bears the fruit of strong gentleness, when we are being church, the world notices. Here are two voices from the second and third century. One is Tertullian, who was a skeptic and a lawyer, and he was converted to Christianity not by their, their having the right position on issues, but by what they produced in life and character. And here's, here's what he says. In a thinly veiled part of his apology, his defense of Christianity, that is really his autobiography, he says, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on the Christians. Look, they say, how they love one another and how they are ready to die for one another. He was a skeptic. He couldn't figure out exactly how Christian doctrine worked. He didn't think it was true, but he looked at these lives and the character of these people and they loved one another and he stopped and it made his head jerk around. Another quote from Cyprian who, who was about 50 years later than this, who's a bishop in North Africa, who's not yet a bishop when he writes this. He's newly converted as he reflects on this. And he's just been describing the meanness of the Roman Empire. The people who are brigands on the, on the highways, the people who are miserable in their own home, all of the things that we would count as a part of our little uh, meanness uh, section of culture right now. He says, it's a bad world, Donatus. He's writing to a friend who's a fellow skeptic and, and is not a Christian. It's a bad world, Donatus an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and a good people who have learned the secret of life. They have found a joy and a wisdom a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am now one of them. Friends, there is something utterly compelling about it when we be the church, when we be strong gentleness in a very mean world, when we shed the need to be right all the time and go to the need to be good and gentle and strong and kind and all of those fruit pieces that Paul names in Galatians 5. God wants to do something in us. God wants to do something in the world through this fruit of the Spirit. So meekness... It's the solution. Amen. Amen.